Hello and welcome to Foxed, the new practical podcast series from Fox & Partners. In these podcasts, we'll be looking at scenarios from our day-to-day practice, offering solutions to some of the most pressing partnership and employment law questions we hear from our clients. Our goal is to offer a digest of some of today's key issues in a succinct and practical style that we hope you'll find useful and engaging. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Caroline Field, a partner at Fox & Partners. Welcome to this edition of Fox to mark World Whistleblowers Day. I'm joined by my colleague, Remzi Oskan. We'll be taking a practical look at this inconsistency between, on the one hand, the universal acceptance that whistleblowing is a good thing, it detects, it prevents wrongdoing and drives change for the better. And on the other hand, what we often see in practice and various studies have substantiated, that whistleblowers in the workplace experience retaliation. So just before we get into the nitty gritty, Remzi, perhaps you could very briefly, because the focus of today is not black letter law, or explain what whistleblowing is and what protections exist for workers in the workplace where they're blowing the whistle. Thanks, Caroline. In a nutshell, workers have legal protections if they disclose information about wrongdoing in the workplace that they reasonably believe to be in the public interest and where they suffer a detriment or are dismissed as a result. This wrongdoing must fall into certain prescribed categories, which includes breach of a legal obligation and can include breach of regulatory obligations in the context of financial services, for example. Yeah, thanks, Remzi. I think we both agree that it's probably a bit more nuanced than that. And the legislation itself is regularly criticised, but but that's definitely not for today. And again, just before we get into the crux of our discussion, can I get your immediate take on why so many cases of whistleblowing in the workplace result in a dispute? I think to begin with, it's important to flag the psychology as it underpins most of what we'll be discussing and highlights the importance of creating a culture where workers in your organisation feel safe to make disclosures. On the one hand, you have the individuals who are at the heart of the complaint and understandably may have an emotional reaction to perceived criticism. On the other hand, you have the whistleblower and the continuing stigma of being regarded as maybe a snitch or biting the hand that feeds them. There might be concerns around retaliation, understandably, which can lead to defensive behaviour. It's almost a them versus us type attitude and often involves protectionist actions. Yeah, I think a good example of that and one we often see in practice is that whistleblowers tend to send documents to their personal account, which in my experience often tactically or otherwise assumes a disproportionate focus of a dispute when it develops. I totally agree, Caroline, and and these actions potentially have regulatory implications too, which can also lead to escalation. Issues are also often intensified in industries where there's one or a limited number of employers. So, for instance, in healthcare with the NHS or in financial services. But going back to the question of why so many cases result in a dispute, I think the more an organisation encourages raising concerns so that all can learn from them and take difficult decisions about what to do if you suspect wrongdoing and take the process generally out of the hands of those involved, the better. Um, But I think we'll return to this a bit later. I think that's probably a good point to turn to what we see in practice and the context in which whistleblowing claims are brought and to look at some of the pressures in the different scenarios. If we firstly look at the position when concerns are raised during the course of ongoing employment and 
I guess there's no reason to believe there would be an imminent exit. What would you say are the common pitfalls here, Ramsey? I think ultimately it comes back to how the business and those in charge perceive or react to the issues raised, which again comes back to culture. The principal dangers are things like a whistleblower not believing that their concerns are being taken seriously, complaints maybe not being recognised as a whistleblowing complaint and therefore no process is engaged at all. Complaints might also not be handled confidentially, which undermines trust. There's also scenarios where a business goes into defensive mode. Um, For instance, we've seen ill-thought-through suspensions, which aside from potentially amounting to a detriment, can also lead to long periods of employees being paid to be out of the business. I think rarely we also see a pause button. We rarely see businesses think, can we look at this before it gets out of hand and agree what we got wrong, what we could have done better and highlight any points of misunderstanding. If the whistleblower then feels ignored, sidelined or there is this perception that the process lacks structure or fairness, then I think there's a greater risk of escalation and an emotional response. Yeah, I think that's particularly the case as there's then this move away from the underlying issues as the focus to how somebody's been treated and why they've been treated in that way. Yes, and then balancing the interests of multiple stakeholders, including other employees who are necessarily involved as part of the investigation, becomes very difficult and it can have much wider implications beyond those directly involved. So a business might lose good, talented people who don't feel that a fair process has been carried out. I think it's also worth looking now at a dismissal scenario. So, for example, where a whistleblower's employment is being brought to an end for an unrelated reason, but the worker believes that the concerns they've raised are part of the motivation. This delicate balancing exercise that we've just been talking about is perhaps less critical, but in my view, it remains essential to follow a well-defined process. In particular, the whistleblowing concerns should be kept entirely separate and the business must deal appropriately with the concerns raised. An investigation into concerns raised is usually advisable in any event, particularly in regulated industries for reasons we'll probably touch on later. But again, opportunities for early discussions to address concerns are rarely taken, um, but, but actually would be very helpful to mitigate litigation risk and causation. Um, in other words, addressing what the reason for any detrimental treatment was um, in claims that, that, that follow. I think one other thing to think about is that it's often said that once in litigation, the system favours the employer with deeper pockets. And it's certainly right that we're now a long way in these types of claims from the employment tribunal being that low-key forum. Perhaps we could discuss that for a moment, because in my view, it highlights the benefits for organisations in focusing on how to prevent whistleblowing claims. Caroline, what would you say are the key risks? I think whistleblowing claims are particularly complex. They're often akin to a high court process. They're time consuming, they're costly. Neither party typically recovers costs, although it's often used tactically um, in circumstances where there can be allegations of unreasonable conduct. I totally agree. And it's worth remembering that a big proportion of those costs relate to rigorous document processes. So employers should expect a data subject access request, which enables individuals to obtain copies of documents relating to the processing of their personal data. 
advice needs to be taken and certainly in, in the cases we typically handle electronic disclosure experts may need to be engaged and the process must be properly handled i think failure to comply is often at the heart of a breakdown of trust from our experience it's worth also remembering the availability of interim relief and the possibility of an order preserving employment, at least insofar as pay is concerned, until after a tribunal's decided the claim, if the evidence is compelling enough. Um, but this can put an employer on the back foot from the outset. Yeah, and I think it's also worth mentioning that it's now pretty commonplace to join individuals as respondents. And while this you know, can increase the pressure in a regulated environment, particularly in industries like financial services, where the treatment of whistleblowers is high on the agenda, the number of conflicting stakeholder interests, you know, including potentially insurers, um, is likely to increase the complexity. And from a business perspective, key people will be distracted, ultimately from their focus on driving forward the commercial success of the business. We've mentioned industry-specific considerations, particularly financial services, a number of times. How prescriptive do you think the regulators are in this context? Lots of regulatory bodies regulation contains reporting obligations. Those reporting obligations must be borne in mind in the context of investigations. Regulators will typically encourage that they're kept in the loop while an investigation is ongoing. And in my experience in recent years, certainly regulatory implications have assumed a much more significant role in disputes which arise, and they can often be used tactically by the parties. Very few have stringent rules around whistleblowing, with the exception of financial services, listed companies, public bodies, including the NHS and US companies also have specific requirements. In financial services, where we have particular expertise, um, requirements relating to whistleblowing don't apply to all, but they are recommended. Um, they do apply to banks, building societies, insurers, and features include things like a whistleblowing champion, which is typically a non-exec director responsible for promoting and managing reporting, a whistleblowing channel, which is an independent reporting channel, which is operated and maintained. It stresses the need for appropriate and effective arrangements for disclosures, at least including reasonable measures to ensure that um, no one experiences victimisation. They stress the importance of training and require all managers to undertake training to recognise the reporting of disclosable concerns, how to protect anonymity and feedback, and you know also importantly, steps to protect the accused. I think the important point here to make as well is, and perhaps goes to explaining the increased prominence of regulatory concerns at play, is that any evidence that a firm has acted to the detriment of a whistleblower could call into question the fitness and propriety of the firm or relevant individuals, and it may affect their continuing satisfaction of conditions for approval or certification um, where individuals are concerned and the threshold conditions for firms. All we've talked about just seems to me to signal that there are good reasons to have a strategy to deal with whistleblowing. Ramsey, what can a policy do in that context? And what does a good policy look like? I think it's safe to say from our experience that a policy alone won't do the job. As we've already stressed, strong workplace culture is likely to make all the difference. Treating whistleblowers as assets, for instance, 
red flags present an opportunity to put things right before escalation and protracted litigation. Building a transparent culture which encourages reporting and having a speak up policy destigmatizes internal reporting concerns. I think senior management are also responsible for setting the tone and removing that stigma. Not too long ago, we saw how the actions of leaders were capable of wholly undermining, encourage best practice and trust. So I think that good culture supported by policy documentation is the answer. Yeah, and I think it's really important that the policy is simple and clear in its message that raising concerns is encouraged and it is a business priority. Ideally, it'd give examples of concerns which should be raised and stress that the business will protect confidentiality and that it has a no tolerance for retaliation. But I think it simultaneously does have to address how the business will deal with any malicious allegations as well, because all of this just demonstrates that the business is prepared to do the right thing. I completely agree. And it might be things like having a champion or someone known to have overall responsibility for arrangements. Um, That might be a good idea, as is making clear the secure channels for making disclosures, as well as setting out how disclosures will be handled. I think this will enable a consistent approach to be taken. All of these aspects should be properly resourced, of course. As we've discussed in certain industries subject to regulation, specific requirements must also be adhered to. Yeah, and I think in response to some of the points we talked about earlier, it's also a good practice to have separate policies in place for whistleblowing and grievance issues, which can often run side by side. However, I think it is useful to make clear how those policies will interact with each other. Ultimately, I think a good policy should ensure that most of the fundamental aspects of decision making are not happening in real time um, in response to the issues being raised when the business is under pressure, the individual's under pressure and there is more scope for things going wrong. Training is also a fundamental part of ensuring the business is, is signalling a commitment to managing whistleblowing properly. It maximises the awareness of policies, Those most likely to be the recipient or subject of complaints, usually the most senior people, should also be provided with bespoke training in order to minimise the risks involved of not identifying disclosures or dismissing concerns without proper consideration or after taking retaliatory steps. And I think it's also important to ensure that any champion appointed also has access to advice as to how he or she discharges their duties. I agree. And and the way that any investigation is handled is also key. Investigations should be fit for purpose and proportionate. I think consideration should be given in response to disclosures as to what's required. For instance, considering whether an external or internal independent team is appointed, what their experience might be and what the scope of the reference is. And in turn, they will need to consider and appropriately communicate with witnesses Um, They need to ensure they understand confidentiality obligations too. There will also need to be communication as to how they intend to deal in due course and ensure where possible the whistleblower is kept in the loop together with other stakeholders to avoid misunderstandings. As we know, silence can be misconstrued. Um, Where necessary, there should also be coordination between employment and regulatory investigations and someone should be keeping a close eye on the timing and content of any reporting to the regulator and the assessment of fitness and propriety. 
I think ultimately recommendations as to action should be provided and those involved should treat the experience as a learning experience and essentially implement best practice for the future. Yeah, thanks, Rimsey. I think that's probably a good point to turn to what we think we can expect from the future and and just have some closing top tips. I personally think we will continue to see this drive towards an encouragement of speaking up. I think so too. And following the UK's departure from the EU, it will be interesting to see the government's commitment to putting in place procedural requirements around policies to mirror member states' commitment, whether they'll go further to include duties to prevent victimisation, which the whistleblowing charity Protect is campaigning for, remains to be seen. I think certainly in financial services, we've seen the regulator willing to flex its muscles in this context in recent months, which may also prove to be a driver for change. So just to finish off, my top tip would be a message to leaders. Ensure the message comes from the top and is lived and breathed by an organisation and that a good policy supports the commitment of the business to properly investigate and support those that raise concerns. That sits neatly with a message to employers. If issues arise, have a well-trodden, workable process to deal with concerns raised consistently to limit reactive decision-making. That concludes today's podcast. We hope you found it useful. Please do get in touch with us if you've got any questions about anything you've heard today. And also look out at the start of next month when Craig Rajkapal of Blackstone Chambers will be joining me to discuss some of the partnership-specific issues in this area. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foxed and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe or find out more details on our website at foxlawyers.com.